Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today, George Plaster. Our news is presented by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in an accident, call Taylor or Russell at 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Kickoff time for the Missouri game on October 17th has been set. It will be at 6.30. That game will be shown on the SEC Network. The guest line is presented by Bowling Branch, started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable Bowling Branch sheets were until I got some. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under safe conditions by men and women treated and paid fairly. Try them for a month. You can return them for free, but you won't want to. Once you get the sheets, try the mattress. That was voted the best mattress of 2018. Go to BowlingBranch.com. That's spelled B-O-L-L. Enter the promo code Vandy. And get $50 off your first set of sheets. The Vandy Sports Podcast is presented by Jody Jones, DDS, trusted for his creative design and committed to both the function and aesthetics of your smile. Jody Jones provides a range of sought-after general and cosmetic dentistry services at his practice in Nashville. Jody has earned the title of number one in Nashville for cosmetic dentistry and provides a unique environment for patients who want his famous Hollywood smile or other services. Patients enjoy getting services from Dr. Jones and his attentive team in a spa-like atmosphere. Dr. Jones has worked with many athletes, movie stars, and celebrities over the years and is dedicated to providing first-rate service to all of his patients. Jody never compromises quality so patients can be confident they will always receive the highest level of care. Special thanks to Jody for being the title sponsor of this season. George Plaster joins me. Of course, George is a longtime sports talk personality in the Nashville area. He now is at Nashville Sports Radio from 2 to 4 every day. George, appreciate you joining me today. Other than being nervous about the Braves, I'm sure. How are you? You know what? I'm uh, I'm feeling good about the Braves. Uh, very relieved that they got a playoff series win because I think that was one of the hurdles the franchise needed to get over. And um, I'm pretty excited about this Marlin series. I think they match up pretty darn good. I do too. I would be shocked if they do not emerge as the winners in this series. I guess you should never be shocked about anything in baseball in a short series, but I feel like after watching those teams, they match up pretty well. Yeah, the big question will be what happens in games three, four, five when it's not Max Freed or Ian Anderson. Hopefully Kyle Wright will continue what he started toward the end of the season because he was pretty darn good at the end of the season. Before that, he was awful. By the way, this is a random Vandy note, uh, but connected the Braves and the topic of our podcast here. I think Dansby Swanson led the league in at-bats this year, I noticed last night, so... That guy had an awful lot to do with that run that the Braves have been on. He sure did. He had a very nice, whatever you want to call, 2020. Uh, Dansby, through his career, has been pretty streaky. Uh, He'll get his batting average over 300 and then go about two for 25 and then have to sort of regroup it. Um, It seems to me that when he goes to the opposite field, that that's when you know he's really, you know, on his A game. 
George, let's talk Vanderbilt football. You and I watched from your living room on Saturday night what was frankly a very uninspiring performance. Uh, my dog is inspired by something at the moment. I don't think it's that. But in any case, uh, I, I was there. I know how much you care about that program. I think it was a struggle for you to watch what was going on. Yeah, it was kind of ugly. Um about the only positive you could take out of it was I thought they ran the ball better than I thought they would in particular in the first half. Um, other than that, there really wasn't a lot that you could sink your teeth into and say, wow, this is going to be pretty good. I, I don't change my opinion at all about seals. He's going to be the least of their problems. The question is going to be, can they keep him protected enough where he can play all these games? Um, we knew going in they had offensive line trouble, had uh, difficulty pass blocking in the game, which is not a big surprise because LSU traditionally has always had a really solid front four of defense. But the bottom line is they didn't get much done. I don't see a lot of team speed, uh, and I don't see a lot of playmakers, and that's concerning. Outside of SEALs, there's just really very little that inspires anybody regarding this program right now. Yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought it was just downright dull. I also think and and we got into this yesterday on the air. Vandy had one situation that could have made the game very interesting, which is the uh, the trip in into the red zone late in the first half. I want to say the, I don't know, five-yard line, I think it was. And they elected to go for the field goal, which they botched from 22 yards. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry, but on the college level, you have to hit a 22-yard field goal. Uh, 90% of high school kickers in this city can make a 22-yard field goal. But to me, the decision to go for a field goal really surprised me. I get the idea that you want to get some points, but if you really are playing to win, you know full well that you're going to have to score touchdowns. Field goals aren't going to get it done. And I think, if nothing else, that may need to be more of the mindset that they take from here on in, which is a much more aggressive, when we get in the red zone, by God, we're going to give it every shot in the world. And uh, maybe that's a lesson they'll learn out of the LSU game. Well, everybody knew that they were not going to be judged against Texas A&M and LSU and those types of opponents, and they shouldn't be, right? I mean, not where they are right now. But I do think there just are signs there that they are not going to be competitive. The yards per play right now, they're giving up 8.1 per play. They are only getting 3.9. When you're getting more than doubled up per play, that's a really bad sign. It is. Um, I don't guess it's totally surprising, but here to me seems to be the deal. The next three games are going to tell the tale of where all this is headed. Home against South Carolina, on the road at Missouri, and I don't remember where the Ole Miss game is. But the bottom line is, it's probably the three most winnable stretch of games they're going to play 
and they better get a win or two or, you know, what people feared going in is probably going to happen. Yeah, and you are going exactly where I was going next. I'm trying to find the SP Plus rankings on my phone. They are not immediately pulling up, but I'm pretty confident that South Carolina, Missouri, and Ole Miss are going to be in the bottom half of the SEC. Ole Miss might be the one that has a chance to break through, but I'd be very surprised uh, with the defense that Ole Miss has or doesn't have. Uh, Missouri is going to be it may be a yeah, I think that game in two weeks, frankly, could be for last place between Missouri and Vanderbilt uh, in terms of overall SEC supremacy. I think that South Carolina is going to end up probably the bottom three or four. So I think they have to get a win somewhere in there. I think that's their best chance. I mean, maybe Tennessee because some crazy stuff has happened in that series lately with regards to how they seem to match up with the Vols. But back to where I was going, they not only did I think they have to get one here, but the question I'm wondering is, what if they don't make any of those games close, then what happens? Well, I mean, I think we know what will start to happen is that there will be a lot of talk about the coaching situation, and then there'll be a lot of debating about whether the school's willing to buy out Derek Mason. Um I think you've put the figure at somewhere around $7 million that they would owe. Um, who knows? But, you know, if you, if you get midway through a season and you don't have any wins, you're on somebody's hot seat. Um, you know, in the pros, they do it a little quicker. Just ask Bill O'Brien yesterday how that works if you go 0-4 and, and Dan Quinn with the Falcons who lost last night to green Bay may find out the same thing. Bottom line is anytime you're over, you're on the hot seat. The gap between them and the rest of the league right now is staggering. Frankly, I'm looking at SP plus rankings and these are pretty good. I think they're going to have some complications doing these things this year because of the complete lack of, non-conference scheduling to where you can really compare leagues in between. But Vanderbilt is 115 of the 127 teams. The next lowest SEC team is Arkansas at 68. Uh, Then it's Missouri at 65. And then, boy, I think the rest of the teams are in the top 50. Mississippi State at 47. Ole Miss at 45. South Carolina at 44. So according to the SP Plus rankings, yeah, the, the worst three teams on their schedule are all coming up. Yeah, sort of looks like the gap between them and, and stadiums. Um, it really does. And, um, I mean, it's a shame, but that's sort of the way it looks. And um, right now, what's What's I think most concerning, there was a little bit of buzz after the Texas A&M game because it gave people some hope, but it's like that turned into a cold shower Saturday night. Whatever enthusiasm may have been there just sort of got doused, and people were like, oh, okay, here's what it is. And that that's alarming because going into the season, there was very little buzz about Vanderbilt football. And I think after, you know, last Saturday night, it kind of returned to that. 
Yeah, looking at the SP Plus rankings, LSU is 20 and A&M is 29. So teams ranked higher than those two teams remaining on their schedule. They've got Georgia at four and Florida at eight. So that's not the toughest of what they'll see, according to this. No, they've got some some tough stuff. The East at the top is really good with Tennessee and, and Georgia and Florida, and they're going to get them all before it's over. Missouri, to me, is probably the most gettable, even though it's on the road. I watched Missouri Saturday against Tennessee, and you just never really felt as you watched it, that Missouri had any shot to win. Let's switch gears for a minute because I think potentially a significant thing has happened within the last few days. And that is the hire of Tommy McClellan, who's, from what I understand, started on Saturday. And I had tweeted something out a few weeks ago, a link to a job posting for a, what do they call it, deputy deputy AD position. I posted at the time, and this was after talking to other people in that field, I thought the posting for that job sounded a lot like the actual AD position. Tommy McClellan has come to Vanderbilt, and I think from everything you and I have heard, is going to have a lot of autonomy. I've now heard this from five different places, and some of them are interconnected. But these are some of my better sources, too. And this is coming from not just the Vanderbilt end, but the tech end as well. And you've heard some of this as well, George. What we keep hearing is he is being charged to run the AD. Uh, Now, what that looks like, what they do with Candace Lee, I don't know how all that plays out. But the drumbeat that we have heard behind the scenes uh, that he is going to be basically running the AD has been pretty strong for a couple of weeks now, I would say. Yeah, uh, this is a story that really has gained a lot of, uh, I guess, traction, if you will, over the last week to 10 days. I know when I first heard the story that it all seemed kind of weird. Why would um, a sitting athletic director uh, go to another school um, to be something other than the athletic director? I mean, it happens every once in a while in coaching you know, I can remember a scenario where Dan Enos was the head coach at Central Michigan and resigned to take the offensive coordinator job at Arkansas. And by the way, that didn't work out real well. But the, the bottom line to this one is that we keep hearing this story, and the story that keeps circulating in this is that Daniel Deermeyer, the new chancellor, um, supposedly went down to Atlanta and met with um, met with this guy, Tommy McClellan, and the rest is history. Now, what I'm not sure we know is what's the connection between Deermeyer and Tommy McClellan? And for now, about the only thing I can come up with is that McClellan had tried to get the job when Malcolm Turner got hired, um, you know, Several people have, have said that McClellan's goal all along was to be an athletic director uh, at the Southeastern Conference level. And I think he's gone after some, some AD jobs. I think Ole Miss, uh, if I've heard correctly, is another one that he attempted to get. Bottom line is this could be a very awkward 
situation where he may be walking as the title, and how is that going to play out? And to be honest, if that's going on and Deermeyer hasn't made it clear to everybody what the pecking order is, then he's done everybody a disservice. Uh, like I said, I don't know how this is going to play out, but um, you know, it's got a potential to be a little goofy. Yeah, that is my concern too. I mean, any other place, what you would do is if you decided that the AD was not competent and capable of performing that function, which is what a source or two that I have spoken with believes is what has happened, you would just move that person out and move a person in who you believe is qualified. And again, if what multiple sources have told me is true, that he's going to be running that AD. But at Vanderbilt, you can never do it that way. That was one of my concerns with the way that they pumped Candace Lee up from the beginning is they put so much out there uh, before he got there that it's almost impossible to back down from because the optics of parting from somebody that you pumped up to the degree that they did, uh, th- that's very hard to walk away from, and you can't convince me that was accidental. Um, the the way it happened, the timing of it, any of that. And I know Candace Lee has a lot of defenders uh, and a lot of people who say the administration is the problem and she's fighting them. I- all I would say is uh, – <laughs> let's remember who put her in power. It was Susan Wente and the same people who gave Malcolm Turner trouble. Um, I, I just don't buy it based on the stuff that I've heard from the beginning, that she had a lot to do with his undoing. I'm with you. I, I feel badly for him. I feel like I hope somebody has made him aware of the mess that he is walking into. Now, I will say one other thing about McClellan taking the job. From what I understand, he's got an autistic son and getting him in a school that could provide for his needs was very important. They found one here in town. I'm not sure which one that was. Exactly, I have some ideas, but I'm not entirely sure. So there are motivations for him to take this job that have nothing to do with professional aspirations. Uh, but in any case, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out, and I don't know how the school is going to manage. And I, I bet you what the school will do is deny all this um, and say there's nothing to it. It's a rumor that people have started, blah, blah, blah. But uh, my, my question is why has that rumor persisted um, on both ends of the spectrum from what I think are very credible sources? I mean, I don't think that just came out of thin air. Well, here's what we – probably do know and that is in the weeks and months to come all of this is going to sort of sort itself out um you know as far as who really is running the ship i would hope if if the scenario that we keep hearing is true i would hope that he really quizzed daniel deermeyer very hard on what the goals and aspirations are because McClelland has been around long enough uh, that he's bound to know that there are real questions uh, in the college athletic world as to how sincere Kirkland Hall is about athletics. So if they did meet in Atlanta, that would give him the opportunity to really find some answers from a new chancellor that most of us have not met, don't know, whatever. And, uh, you know, if he didn't ask those questions, shame on him. 
the thing that I have said from the beginning, and I don't know if he followed this advice or not. Um, I don't have any evidence to suggest that he did, but I have said from the beginning that they ran Turner out or he resigned or however you want to put it. It was basically a mutual parting of the ways where I think both of them wanted out by that point. If they did anything less than due diligence, uh, I say they, Deermeyer, because he wasn't there at the time, in figuring out who did what and who was involved in what and, and why that fell apart and who ran him off and who was hindering and you know, following the money in terms of what he was allowed to do and not do and you know, all this spinning that was complained about uh, that was yet allowed at the same time. The, the facts never added up. Uh, no, it is not like Vanderbilt to admit mistakes um, and, and to move on and, and do those sorts of things and do anything that would cause embarrassment. Vanderbilt would rather whistle past the graveyard and stick with problems um, and tell you that anybody that has an alternate version of the story is crazy. But I just wonder until they get to the bottom of what happened and who did what, and deal with that and get those people completely away from any athletic influence or, frankly, fire them. Because I, th- I think if you undermine one portion of the university, there's no reason that you would not undermine another portion. Um, I, I really think that's the issue. I think until they deal with what happened and who did what, I think that potentially McClellan or anybody else is just walking into a, a den of snakes. Well... Again, I would hope that he got all of this cleared one way or the other uh, with Deermeyer in his meeting that we think happened down in Atlanta. Um, there's no way to know at this point, but I, I've been, you know, I've been involved in athletic department meetings where, you know, there's an obvious um, who's in charge. Um, you know, when, when we would have our weekly Tuesday meeting at Belmont when I was there, you know, it was pretty apparent Scott Corley was in charge. And it was also very apparent that I wasn't in charge, for instance. Um, you, you know, there, there's just a natural, you know, who's running the ship. And if if you have any doubts in a room as to who's running the ship, eventually you're going to have problems. Because what you'll have is certain factions that feel one way about an issue, and they'll start siding with athletic director A, and then another group that says, well, I like this idea better, so I'm siding with athletic director B. There can't be two. Two is is one more than you can make work, and we all know that. George, let's go to the mailbag that is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood who can take care of all your insurance needs. Call him today at 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuamintonhq or facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He is my insurance agent. Give him a try and tell him you heard about it here. Bear 8000 says, knowing that neither option is good, if you were forced to make a choice between the two, would you choose a basically empty COVID-19 Vanderbilt Stadium for a home game or the Georgia 
LSU crowd environment for one of the home games? I would choose A, even though it's the sort of the the best of two really bad options. You know, that was one of the factors that going into the game was going to be interesting is it was going to be the first time in years that Vanderbilt played a home SEC game where they didn't feel like the visitor simply because there wasn't anybody there. Yeah, it was a bizarre thing. We were both watching going, why in the world are the students in the end zones? And why wouldn't you put those people at midfield? I don't understand what they were doing. It looked to me like there were um, clusters of students that were, I don't know, maybe maybe if I had a different look, I would change my mind. But at times when the TV would pan there, um, I wondered how far some of the kids were apart. I don't know. Just like if you're worried about social distancing and all those things and start letting more people in, and for goodness sakes, don't throw them in the corner of the end zone. At least put them at midfield where they get a better view of things. That was kind of weird. Yeah, well, uh, what isn't over there anymore? But anyway, uh, let's see. Mr. Vandy says, what's your opinion of Donovan Kaufman the first two games? Donovan Kaufman, of course, has now started both games at safety, has barely come off the field. I think, George, maybe the biggest play of the game was that 58-yard kickoff return that he had, at least on the Vanderbilt side. Yeah, I mean, that was one of, you know, if you're looking for bright spots, that was one of the bright spots in the thing. And, you know, maybe he emerges as a playmaker on special teams. Uh, they can use all the help they can get right now. You hope that as you get toward the end of the season that that doesn't wear him down. But so far, so good. Seymour83 says, great job by both of you guys on the post-game show, uh, which, by the way, if you've not done that, check that out on our YouTube channel. George and I did about 35 minutes after the game, uh, right after the game. You can still check that out. Uh, The feed is still there. He wants to know, does the hiring of Tommy McClellan mean we might actually see shovels in the ground and other types of athletic commitments from the university? Oh, I guess it's possible. I'll go back to whatever took place that got him here. At some point, he and Deermeyer had to have a meeting, and he had to ask Deermeyer some very tough questions about what is what is the university's commitment to athletics, what are its goals. You know, he has to know on the surface that this is not law tech. This is not conference USA. And I don't mean that to downgrade those conferences, but from a facility standpoint, they are so far behind what the rest of the sec is doing. He had to ask that question. And if he didn't shame on him. That raises a good point. I think one of the criticisms that people had of Nick Zeppos, that I think it was fair. Zeppos didn't have any guts. He didn't have any courage to stand up for anything. He didn't have any courage to talk to anybody. And, and frankly, Deermeyer has not been out in front of the media. It, this They've gone back to this Vanderbilt control the message on everything uh, where they don't want to let him speak to anybody about athletics, at, at least not yet. Uh, maybe that will change now that he's got what apparently is his AD here, um, whether that's entitled or not. 
But where I'm going with this is so much leadership on that campus seems to operate out of fear, out of fear of faculty, out of fear of what people think. Dearby is going to have to put the hammer down and take a stand and say, hey, look, you're either with us or you're against us for athletics and lead that way. Because I really think anything less than a strong hand out of the chancellor is just going to doom everybody to repeat all the fiascos that we've gone through, uh, you know, as we sat and watched this thing. But, and I'm also thinking of something else too. Uh, You know, anytime you think things are about to change, because I, I remember when David Williams stepped down on September 11th of 2018, that's now been 25 months. You know, the whole thing was everything's changing. It's all going to be different now. 25 months later, nothing has changed for athletics um, except for more losing seasons. They did win a national title. And and baseball, I sort of separate that from the rest because uh, Tim's got his own operation over there that seems to be impervious to a lot of the forces that govern the school. And and good for him for building an empire that way because that's the only way it will work. But my, my point is... You can get optimistic for all these reasons, but 25 months ago, everybody was optimistic for a dawn of a new era, too, and I can't really name anything in the way of tangible progress. In fact, um, you know they've disbanded media relations in a lot of ways, and now that's run out of the university. That's not going well. So uh, I think any time you, you look for optimism, that's great, but you look at recent history and just campus has found a way to squash that at every turn. Well, it's hard to argue anything you've put out there. Um, Kirkland has been such a weird deal, and it seemed to be so anti-athletics. They, they seem to have a philosophy that if you give athletics any opening, that they'll just come in and take over, and we don't want that, and blah, blah, blah. The truth of it is, I I always go back to something Joe Johnson said when he was the president at the University of Tennessee. It was something to the effect of uh, athletics is the uh, front door to the university. For a lot of people, that's, that's really what they know and see about a university comes from athletics. One of the areas right now where Deermeyer may be benefiting is the fact that so few people right now have any real passion for all of this there's so much of an attitude of if they don't care why should i care and so the fact that he's been here for a little over three months and really hadn't said anything no than they did months ago and uh, that's unfortunate uh, i don't know what his intentions are in the deal but you know i think we've got a pretty good idea from Kirkland, how they want to, quote, control the message. And uh, unfortunately, that sounds a little too much like the White House. Yeah, I found out a little bit about control the message this weekend. But um, in any case, (sighs) that's the thing with them. They don't ever want to be in front of an audience that asks tough questions. Everything is about control and narratives and what they want out there. And they don't want to be asked tough questions. I think, to me, they build credibility when they are willing to be asked tough questions and have to confront their own weaknesses and flaws and answer things about why things the way they are. I think, actually, they could, if they are serious about athletics, they could help themselves 
by putting themselves in front of people that would ask tough questions. I mean, frankly, if I'm Deermeyer right now and I want to fix this, I call a press conference and I ask everybody in Nashville to come. Say, ask me anything. I might not be able to answer it, but we're going to be more transparent, which, by the way, was promised by Candace Lee. It has not happened. To me, the, the more that they try to control the message and who talks to who and not putting him in front of anybody, uh, that is not going to build them any credibility in getting anybody to believe that they are serious about this. Well, let's see. Um one of the things that has changed, this is just my opinion. You can't necessarily say it's fact. But 25, 30 years ago, when I used to yell and scream about the fact that I didn't think anybody at the top cared, I caught a lot of grief for that. And I finally got to a point where I said, okay, if it bothers everybody that much, I'll just stop. Because you had, you know, all kinds of cries of protest, you're wrong, you know. Well, fast forward 25 years later, everybody knows, um, you know, Kirkland can sit there and spin until, you know, the cows come home. The fact of it is everybody knows that there has been no care whatsoever from that part of campus, which is the most important part. And nobody is fooled anymore by the belief that you know, nobody really cares about athletics from up there. So they can spin until hell freezes over. The problem is the secret's out. Everybody knows, and it's no longer anything that anybody questions. Yeah, I mean, I've said this repeatedly. They tell on themselves at every turn. Because if you have plans and things you want to do, you get those out there, you talk to people, all that they have done privately is have Candace tell people, well, they're big plans and we're just not ready to come with them. We've been hearing that for nine months now. Uh, you know, as far as I know, the locker room thing is off the table now. That was the simplest of the plans, and they can't even do that. I mean, their strategy to me seems to be to try to shut out the people who would ask them for any transparency or accountability and try to rally the few people left who will spew whatever narrative they want to put out there to fan councils and black and gold clubs and then bring the message in-house with communications to where Kirkland controls everything. And other than the people that they have involved in those efforts, I don't think anybody's fooled. No, I don't think anybody's fooled anymore either. Um, you know, before the pandemic, you could see it in ticket sales, both in football and in men's basketball. They've reached alarming lows. And, you know, the, I, I have thought for a while, uh, especially with the pandemic, that what Kirkland really wants is just to eliminate athletics, period. Now, that may be a stretch, and there may be reasons why it is a stretch, because Playing in the Southeastern Conference brings you a lot of money in May when the, the league gets together down in Florida. The bottom line is they're either going to have to fish or cut bait at some point soon because they have a public that's not buying all this. Uh, you know, yeah, there's some, there's some hard ankles that may still hold out hope that none of this is true, but I think the rank and file of whatever is out there, 
knows what, what the truth is and it isn't buying Kirkland's message. George, I think we've hit about everything today. Any parting thoughts as we end this episode? Go Braves. I'm with you. I am dying to see a brave somebody in LDS. I believe it's going to happen. Uh, and before we write the Padres off and just anoint the Dodgers all the way into the NLDS, boy, that team can really hit and figured out a way uh, to, gosh, I think they were down one nothing to come back and win that series, despite kind of being in the spot that the Braves are in where the, you know, some of your better starting pitchers are hurt and, uh, the, the Padres and the Braves, to me, look like very similar teams at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, if the Padres had their full uh, complement of starting pitchers and they don't, I think you'd really have some worry from the Dodger camp. There is so much pressure on the Dodgers right now to win it all. They're the one team left that if they lose, if they don't win the World Series, it's considered a failure. And the fact of the matter is winning a championship is really hard. They know it. Uh, the Braves know it. A lot of teams know it. It's just hard. And when you have this pressure of either win it all or it's a failure, um, the, the 95 Braves that did win it all, they had that pressure. And some of their guys talk about it that, Rather than the out-and-out joy that they should have experienced, it was more relief. And so the Dodgers have got some things going against them. What they've got going for them is they've got Clayton Kershaw and Walker Bueller as a one-two combo that's really good. But I'm like you. I'm interested in seeing that series. I'll be watching it tonight because I want to know if the Padres are capable of pulling this off. George, thank you for joining us today and looking forward to doing this again next week. Just happy to do it. I hope everybody stays safe and well. Um, obviously, we're going through rough times. Who knows when it's going to end, but I'm pretty certain there will be a day where this does end. Yeah, I'm going to the zoo with my kids as soon as I'm done with this. That'll be one of the few normal things that we have done in a while, and I'm looking forward to just getting out and doing something like that. Excellent. Way to go. Yeah, you're right. He's George Plaster. I'm Chris Lee. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast. We are planning on three more episodes later this week. So thank you for listening to this one. I hope you will listen to the ones to come as well.